Welcome to this episode of Trauma Talk. Today my guest is Frank Williams and we're going to be discussing the pros and cons of long spine boards and how they should be used appropriately in today's setting. Frank was our guest on our second episode discussing RSI and airway. You can find all our past episodes, including our first episode with Frank, at traumatalk.podbean.com. Frank, would you go ahead and introduce yourself to the audience? Yeah, uh, thanks, Aaron. I appreciate the invitation to speak with you today about long spine boards. My history goes back a, a few decades in the pre-hospital world, getting my start as an EMT in Butler County, working my way through, become a paramedic, and then saw a real opportunity to become a flight nurse. So I knew I had to be a nurse to do so. Went to nursing school, ended up working in the surgical intensive care unit environment for a while, and then was lucky enough and blessed to become a flight crew member with LifeWatch at Westlake. From there, I've done my career in air medicine and and now come home to Butler County where I end up being the chief of EMS here in Butler County. What's the earliest version of the long spine board you remember using and do you have a preference? So long spine boards for me of course was a required element of our EMT training and testing and um, two versions of that on the long spine board different than a short spine board was one wooden that was lacquered believe it or not and the other one, which was metal, which was, looking back now, was kind of a torture device. But yeah, so metal and, and wood. In 2013, the Kansas Board of EMS, along with the Medical Advisory Council, put out a position statement on long spine board use. They recommend for high-risk patients, such as ejection from a vehicle, a motorcycle crash greater than 20 miles an hour, auto versus pedestrian or bike at greater than 20 miles an hour, an axial load to the head, diving accident, a fall three times a patient's height. They also recommended it for low-risk patients who have point tenderness on palpation to any of the spinal processes, are not reliable or competent, are not at baseline level of alertness, a decreased level of consciousness or inebriated, have a distracting injury and are unable to communicate adequately. Frank, can you think about any other times it's appropriate to use the long spine board? So in the rescue environment, especially um, down in, in ditches, in mangled vehicles, in collapsed be- buildings, those become a device that were quick and easy and still are to get into smaller places where we can't really get four people or six people around a patient to lift them appropriately and move them and still maintain that inline stabilization for the spine. So there are definitely situations where the spine board should be used, in my opinion. Now, that in lieu of other devices that are coming around now that manufacturers are are catching up with the spinal restrictions versus complete immobilization. The short spine boards have evolved into harnesses now which we use in the rescue world that allow for rope rescue and pulling and dragging. So there are some other devices coming around, but right now the spine board still can be used for gaining leverage and the ability to place a patient still in that inline position and remove them from whatever unusual uh, rescue situation may be there. Should there be any considerations with certain aircraft? that long spine boards, aircraft accommodate those better than they do some of the current devices such as scoop stretchers. I mean, we get that feedback and that's one of the the things to consider for sure is when you are air medically transporting a patient is what device are they on, whether it be a uh, full body tarp or vacuum mattress of sorts, all of those things should be considered and checking with your local, you know, air medical provider to see what works best. And honestly, having them come out to do training and being able to do a mock scenario to put them in and, and bring them out to know what those catch points are or what the limitations are.
I really like that idea. I've always approached this as a big team venture that involves the EMS, the rural providers, the flight, all the way to the trauma team. And I love the idea of involving your local flight or both flight services that you use to pre-plan and know what they need to better serve the patient. So we know a pressure ulcer can form in as little as one to two hours. Is there anything we can do to better serve our patient while they're on that long spine board? Yeah, I think a lot of the information that was researched from Canada and the Nexus study that first kind of broke the ground on this was that there are other ways. And you can still maintain inline stabilization, in my opinion, anecdotally better than with a long spine board long term because of filling spaces. I mean, how many times in our training, especially in the EMS world, were we told we need to fill this void? with a triangular bandage or a cravat. The reason for that, I believe, was to take some of the pressure off and equally distribute the weight that is bearing down from a body onto that hard, you know, non-malleable surface. Hence the vacuum splint mattresses that came out. Those are very popular with the spine board underneath them. That was to fill the void space. And just knowing pathophysiology of ulcers and other things that come up in my career, especially in the nursing world, I mean, that makes total sense. If we can equally distribute that pressure. People that sleep at night, I mean, sleeping bed companies make their their living off of hey, how can we make somebody more comfortable? And that's to relieve the pressure points that all of our bony parts of our body, the tailbone, the elbow, all of those things, that's something we we don't pay close enough attention to, I think. So how quick have you seen a pressure ulcer begin to form? You know, in, in the world of air medicine that I, that I worked in for years, we would see redness appear within just 30 minutes. By the time sometimes we would respond to a hospital to pick up a patient, it was noticeable. And those patients that were alert and oriented enough would be moving their feet because their heels would be already reddened. So yeah, pressure ulcers are a real concern, especially in those older age groups. And of course, in the younger population, uh, the skin integrity that may or may not be there needs to be preserved. But yes, many times we even put on, you know, towels to cushion the heels, blankets. You've been in that environment as well, Aaron, as a flight paramedic, and um, just to be able to get that pressure off. Because it was distracting sometimes to the other assessments we were doing, it was just so painful. You've really made me reflect on the patients that come in the trauma bay, being worried about pressure ulcers in everybody, but also giving special consideration to those diabetic patients, patients who don't perfuse their skin properly, not just the geriatric patients we see. Absolutely. I I think that there's studies out there that if we look hard enough, we can find prevention of infection and nosocomial infection specifically is a big focus of our patient care in hospital. And although I don't practice in the hospital currently, I know that the skin breakdown and being able to cover those wounds and or treat those wounds is a primary focus. I have a good friend who her whole life as a nurse has been spent on wound care and wound management for a reason. Hyperbaric chambers, for instance, that are available at Wesley Medical Center are utilized in some cases for that. It starts with that simple redness that we see and then progresses from there. So mortality and morbidity rates definitely can rise because of the secondary infections. We've compromised somebody's skin and now it becomes an open wound and now it migrates to a systemic infection of sorts. It doesn't seem realistic when we're resuscitating a patient, but it is the reality of what we've seen. So would you say after resuscitation and stabilizing the patient, 
making sure that you do everything you can to stop pressure ulcers from forming is vital in patient care and helping them get out of the hospital sooner. You know, the holistic care piece is what we're looking at, and it's really hard to do that when you're in the heat of the moment and you're thinking, I've got to resuscitate this patient. And that's my primary focus. You know, on down the line, we were taught, or I was taught as a nurse and in paramedic school, is that once these life-saving things are secured and we have some stability, I mean, those secondary things need to be addressed, which includes all those different medical, medical concerns of diabetes. Think about all of the people who have susceptibility of dehydration, which their skin integrity is going to be poor to start with. So you're right, age group isn't all that we should consider when worried about pressure ulcers. Frank, is it okay to remove a patient from a long spine board in the back of an ambulance or on a cot? Yeah, I think that that's one of the missing links is that it's by convenience that we leave people on those long spine boards. And so many a times have we moved a patient out of a out of a rescue situation into a control, more controlled environment and then been able to do a four-point lift using some type of full-body tarp off of the spine board onto the cot and still maintaining inline stabilization. Uh, that can be done. It's a technique that should be practiced, but definitely that. Slide boards are another thing. It's okay to put a blanket down before you put them on the spine board as well if that's more convenient. Or these full body tarps that you see with handles already pre-made in them. Those could go down on the spine board before you extricate them from a rescue situation, and then it's a pretty easy move in line onto a more comfortable, you know, less pressure point mattress. So we sometimes see in the Bay that people opt not to use the long spine board because it didn't fall into the correct criteria, but they also go ahead, but they also dismiss the use of a C-collar since they didn't use a long spine board, almost as if those two have to be used together or not at all. Would you speak to your C-collar protocol at Butler County EMS? Our protocols have been designed to include a C-collar even though we don't use a long spine board in all of those cases because the natural affinity for people is to look or make eye contact when you're doing an assessment. So it limits the range of motion. And I think that's the design of C-collars since they were invented was it's not going to prevent somebody from moving their cervical spine, but it's going to remind them. And it helps us as a, as a caregiver to give a visual, even if we're not caring for that patient when they first come in, is, oh, that patient's got a C-collar on. I need to be cautious to make sure and remind them that they need to keep their eyes forward and their cervical spine in line until such time, you know, studies such as radiology and x-rays, CT scans, whatever need to be done to say for sure we don't have some type of injury that could affect the central nervous system. The spinal column is an important, you know, part of our body. I know in the trauma bay, our surgeons and PAs won't remove a C-collar, even if they had a clear CT, if there's still pain there or distracting injury or a decreased level of consciousness just to make sure everything's all right, even though they've been removed from a long spine board hours before. You know, back to that one big team idea that we talked about at the beginning. I love the idea of uh, EMS services and outlying facilities working together to get that patient off that long spine board as fast as possible, even doing joint training and just being a constant reminder to each other. 
Yeah, and I encourage that, especially in the rural frontier communities. Same thing with the hospitals. I mean, the walking through these scenarios and how we're going to deal with a long spine board that's in place, knowing that we can prevent these pressure ulcers. How are we going to do that when we get into the ER, move them off the bed if we haven't had time to as an EMS crew? Same thing from the hospital perspective of being able to work with probably the multiple EMS services that may come to your facility and saying, you know, what's a standard that we can all do and expect here in our facility when EMS does come in with a long spine board? Just pre-planning that becomes, you know, a routine, a habit. Frank? Thanks for being on the show again. And to our listeners, you can find all our past episodes, including our first episode with Frank, at traumatalk.podbean.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time.